Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you so much for the day that we have before us, the coolness of morning, um, pleasant afternoon. Father, we thank you that we can gather as your people, that we can sing praises to you, that we can confess our sins before you and receive forgiveness, that we can affirm our faith and boldly proclaim what we believe, and that we can sing praises to your name and then hear from you in your word. We pray that you would speak to us this morning. Help us to see Jesus this morning in everything that we look into, that we would be more and more like him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We started last week this study in Titus. It is the third of the pastoral epistles. Chronologically, it's actually the second. First Timothy would have been written by Paul first, and then Titus, and then Second Timothy, which was at the end of his life. Um, this passage speaks about elders, and yet we need to look at it, I think, from a more practical um, manner. Uh, Pastor Jake has preached in 1 Timothy chapter 3 on elders and deacons, two messages there. And then for those who have been here for a while, if you remember when we were displaced and we were across town at what we um, affectionately called T2, there at Spring Creek Parkway and Independence Parkway, um, he brought forth two messages there, one on elders and deacons as well. And I would uh, commend you to those messages. They'll be more in-depth on what it means to be an elder. But I want to look at it in terms of what I think is the way Paul was trying to write to Titus with regards to the churches there in Crete. Uh, the, if you remember last week, we, we looked at um, a greeting of grace. We talked about how Paul had gone to Crete and was planting churches there. We don't know why he left but he left before the work was done. And so he is asking Titus to carry out that work and do that work. And that work um, is for the sake of the elect, for all those who God has chosen before the foundation of the world. If you remember, um, even a week before that, we talked about the, getting the big, big picture and looking at Revelation chapter 7 and seeing how the end of all things in, in time as we know it ends with the universal church, those Christians, those believers in Jesus Christ from every age, from every nation, every tribe, every tongue, gathered around the throne of God to worship Him with the heavenly hosts. And so we, I want you to have that picture in the back of your mind. We say the Revelation song, which is from Revelation uh, chapter 4 and 5. So keep that in mind because what Paul is instructing Titus to do here is to continue the work of church planting. Church planting is a work of discipleship. It is making new disciples, and it is maturing existing disciples. And we do that through planting churches. Our denomination believes in planting churches, not only here in America, but around the world. And so Paul is instructing Titus, um, you need to get on with the work here. And what that work is, is to help people come to faith and then grow them up in a knowledge of who God is and encourage them through their faith and through their knowledge to grow in godliness or holiness that they may do good works, which is to make disciples, share the gospel with others, 
All of this, we said last week, was of grace. Well, that takes us to uh, the beginning of our passage this morning and answering the question, well, what then is Titus supposed to do? What is he supposed to do? We learn from Ephesians, Paul's letter to Ephesians, that the church's foundation, the cornerstone, is Jesus Christ. And then what gets built upon that is by the apostles and the prophets, being the Word of God from the Old Testament, New Testament, and it, the church is built up. So the Word has to be present with the building of churches, church plants. But it also requires people who can rightly divide the Word of God to do that. And this is the work that Titus is asked to do. This is why Paul says, I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. Probably a better way to, to say this is, you know, what's, what's been left incomplete, what was work in process, I need you to take that Titus and I need you to bring it to fruition, bring it to completion. And in order to do that, you have to appoint elders, appoint elders. Now, I think for us in the back of our minds, we should be asking a question. How is it that you could employ, uh, appoint elders in a church plant? I mean, you've got to think about, are these believers really mature in the faith? That's a valid question to do here. But the idea of appointing elders is not only to select someone for that office, what Titus was supposed to do, but it's also to make them. It is to train them. He isn't just saying, yeah, you'll do over here and you'll do over here. Now be elders here. The part of his job was to do the training of these elders. They did have to have some characteristics, and we'll get to that as we're looking at the text this morning, but there are some principles that we want to look at of the office of elder, and they're in verse 5 here. The first of that is that they are needed for the church. They are ordained, appointed, by God. You will remember here at Trinity, usually in the spring, generally in the month of, of April, sometimes in May, we to say to you that we want to have nominations for the offices. And so there's the office of elder and the office of, of deacon. And we'll take your nominations. But those nominations that you make are supposed to be based upon your observation and what you see and know of these men. Shouldn't be taken lightly. Elders and deacons, or well, nominations for elder and deacon, they should already show the characteristics of the office. That's why we have them here in Titus. That's why we have them in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's not based on potential. You're not nominated, you shouldn't nominate someone to go, yeah, you know, in a couple of years from now, I think this guy will be really great. They should already manifest those characteristics. And so when you nominate, you should be observing them. You should be seeing them. This is how Jesus uh, set up his church. In Matthew chapter 16, he talks about, 
I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. Well, how will he build it? He'll build it on the proclamation that Peter made there that said, you are the Christ, the Son of God. But he will also build it upon the work of the apostles. And then apostolic delegates like Timothy and Titus and then through elders. There's a chain of succession that takes place here. And that's how he'll build his church, through the proclamation of the gospel and through officers within the church. So these are some principles here. We also get out of this verse 5 that there is a plurality of elders. There isn't one elder. There should be a plurality of that. That's for our own protection. And it's for our own teaching and wisdom. There is a great synergistic effect when elders are gathered together to bring up and discuss matters of the church. If you're single-minded, if you just have one, it's going to be what I think, what my personality is, my experience, maybe my training and all of those things, and it's going to be one option. But when you sit in a room full of elders, as I've been privileged to do, you, you might think one thing and bring something up, and then a brother will lovingly bring up a more wise, discerning, beneficial solution to the discussion that's being made. Sometimes we have robust discussion about things. That's why there's a plurality of elders, that we can seek God's face and collectively come to a consensus on what is best for the church. And so there's a plurality of elders. That's another principle. And there are also elders for every church, a plurality for every church, the local church. Titus was to appoint them in all the different cities in Crete. So this man had a lot of work to do. Training elders, placing the elders, and doing the work of getting the church in order that it may thrive and flourish. Leadership is needed in every aspect of life, but particularly in the church. We see leadership throughout the world. We see CEOs. We see military leaders. We see conductors of music and presidents of governments and fathers and mothers all playing leadership roles. But there is a difference between worldly leadership and leadership within the church. I mean, just think about it. Most worldly leadership has an agenda in mind. What's in it for me? What glory can I bring to myself? What profitability can I bring to myself? And the church is different. Elders, deacons, officers of the church are servant leaders. There is a responsibility that officers in the church are to have for others. It takes a lot to ask of an elder or a deacon to be an officer of the church because they have to set aside and sacrifice for the sake of the congregation as a whole. There, it, is, it is a weighty responsibility. And it's something that we as elders or the deacons have to work with. So you can pray for us. Because it's so easy to get focused back on self. 
to have a bad week. And like Moses say, the people you gave me. (laughs) Become discouraged and go, it's time for a little me time. But that's not leadership in the church. And I say that because that was not the leadership that Christ exemplified for us. He came not to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. Elders in the church take on a weighty task. And they are to be different than leaders in the world. Well, those are some principles of the office of elder. There's supposed to be a plurality, that they're supposed to be local. They're supposed to be men who are mature. Not necessarily age, even though elder there does talk about being older. But they need to be spiritually mature beyond their years. They also need to be men. Now, there are some that don't like that, but that's what Scripture teaches. That the offices of elder and deacon are men. And there is a precedent to this. (laughs) Jesus himself selected 12 disciples who were later apostles, all men. This does not speak ill or mean less of women. We are at Trinity and in the Presbyterian Church in America what is called complementarian. That simply means that we believe that there are roles for men and women according to the teaching of Scripture, that they are different but complementary roles. You see that in marriage. There's a different role for a father than there is a mother. You see it in family life. You see it in church leadership as well. So we are complementarian. We're not egalitarian. Not every believer in Jesus Christ can just pick and choose whatever they want to do. Spiritual gifts will dictate where you serve within a church. It's what you're good at. It's what you will have a passion for and a desire to serve. So these are principles of the position or the office of elder. The second thing we can look at is the example of godly leadership or the example of godly elders. Like I said, they're to be exemplars. And they're to be, first of all, good examples in their relationships and their conduct. Verse 6 begins to take up this idea of relationships where elders are to thrive and be a good example of. It begins by saying they need to be above reproach above reproach another way to look at this is to say that they're blameless not sinless <laughs> if sinless was a needed characteristic there would be no elders there'd be no Christians but they are to be blameless that just means that they there's no accusation or charge against them that says that they're inconsistent with what they profess to believe. They're not hypocrites. 
So we want to be above reproach in our relationships. This will speak about our spiritual competence. And there's two key relationships that are discussed here in the text first. That of being a husband and that of being a father. These are the things when we get around to nomination time that you should be aware of when you nominate an elder or a deacon. How are they as a husband and how are they as a father? This means you really need to know the other people that are in the church, particularly the men in the church. And if they are living up to the characteristics of the particular office that you're considering to nominate them to, you will see these things. An elder is supposed to be a shepherd. An elder is supposed to be able to teach. Have they taught you? Have they shepherded you? Have they checked up on you? Or at least someone else that you know. Do you see them with these characteristics and manifesting those within a community group? Maybe in the Sunday school class. Maybe in some other activity. But the first thing is that of a husband. And it says that they are to be the husband of one wife. Now we don't have time to get into all the theological debates about what this actually means. Okay, does it, does it mean that they can only be married one time? That's it. Nothing else. Does it, does it mean that um, they just have one wife at a time? Well, polygamy wasn't an issue at this point in history, so that's probably not it. But what about what Paul says when he says if a spouse dies that you're free to remarry? Would that exclude someone from the office of elder? Or if someone was divorced maybe some time before? But what about if they were the innocent party in the divorce? Does that exclude them? I think what it really gets down to at this point is where is that man right now? Does he manifest the characteristics that make for a godly elder? Are they a one-woman man? The wife that they have, do they display the characteristics that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5? Do they love their wife as Christ loved the church? Is he willing to give himself up for her? Does he honor her? What if he's not married? Does that exclude him from the office of elder? I don't think so. And so what we want to see is how is he with his wife? How is he now? Well, the second thing that it speaks about is his children. It's interesting because it talks about children in, in the plural. And this idea here of Children means younger children. They're still in the home. In other words, they're not adult children. A candidate for elder wouldn't be responsible for a grown adult. That's the bottom line of this. And it says they have to be believers. That should raise questions too. 
Do all my children need to be believers before I'm elected into the office of elder? I think a better, a better interpretation of believers here means faithful. We need to take a step back and what is it looking at? It's looking at a, a man and are they godly in their married life and are they godly in their fatherhood? Are the children faithful to the teaching that's taking place in the home? That's the whole point that Paul points to in 1 Timothy 3. when He said they should manage their own households well. So if you have children and you are training them up in the way that they should go, whether they have placed faith in Christ or not, are they obedient in the home? How do you manage the household? If you're having problems with children all the time, the two ideas here of debauchery, which means just rebellion or insubordination, if you're having that problem with all your children, then maybe you're, you should pass from a nomination for elder. Maybe you should see, receive wise counsel to say, it's not for you. So we need to be able to observe and see men who are being put up for elder. Are they godly in their relationship? But are, are, they, also, are they also godly in their conduct? That's where verses 7 and 8 come into play. Are they godly in their conduct? And here you have five negatives and six positives of characteristics that an elder is either not to have or is to have. And you see them here as being, again, above reproach or not arrogant, not quick-tempered, not a drunkard, not violent, not greedy for gain. I use the word not in there. That's what's in the original language. They're not this, not this, not this. And so these are things that you're supposed to observe. Not arrogant. Seeking to please themselves. Looking for what's in it for me or being very stubborn. It's their will or nothing. You don't want a man that is arrogant. You don't want him to be quick-tempered. They need to be temperate. Does, does, does someone, do you have a conversation with someone and boy, it doesn't take much for them to have a quick fuse. I played football in high school and uh, the quarterback, he was a big Notre Dame fan. His name was Jim. I won't say his last name. <laughs> but his name was Jim. And you know what everybody thought about him? If they said, what is Jim like? Jim's a hothead. That was his reputation. He was a hothead. He was competitive so much so that if it didn't go that way, boy, he let you know it. He was good at what he did. And he was a great guy off the field. Better in the classroom. But on the field, he was a hothead. That is not the type of man that you want entering the office. You don't want a drunkard. Now this doesn't mean that there is, we're not teetotalers. 
But it also means that we're very, very careful. We really shouldn't do anything that's going to offend a brother, a weaker brother or weaker sister. But we certainly, if we are to partake of the gifts of God for the people of God, we do so always with moderation. Because we are not supposed to be drunk with wine, but we're to be filled with the Spirit. Those are antithetical to one another. And so we want to be very careful about that. And we don't want to become violent. So that literally means it's a striker. They want to have a fist fight. These were things that the church at Crete dealt with. These are realities. That's why they're being listed here, but they are true of every church in, in every age. The other thing is they're not greedy for gain. One of the things that was a problem with the early church is those that were coming in who didn't live up to their faith. Say they're nominal Christians. There was not surprising for them to skim the plate as it went by. Take from the offerings. I mean, do what Judas did. You know, he had the belt and he pilfered that. So these are things that, that are an automatic disqualified. But here's what I want to have you think. If you don't even know a man well enough to know, well, I don't know if he is or not then you don't nominate, you don't put him forward. And you need to take steps toward them. You need to get to know them. There is then these negatives that say, this means the character of this individual is not up to the standards that Christ has laid forth in Scripture. You want them to be these positive attributes. You want them to be hospitable. So here's a hard one. Brothers, I read this this week. Gail and I have been out of our house for a few months, so I'm going to kind of use that as a little bit of an excuse, but I can't anymore. This idea of hospitality, brothers, fellow elders, and even deacons, it says you're willing to open your home. Are you willing to do that? To be a hospitality? hospitable to others whether they're people you know or a stranger that one hit hard when I was going through this this week I did meet um, with a fellow elder this week we were working with a particular individual And we were talking to him about some things and, and really being loving and gracious. And this came up. This idea at least came up. I go, if you need a place to stay, you can stay at my house. Because I had studied this. Now my wife doesn't know that. <laughs> that would have been a fun one. Um, honey, we have a guest. We need to be hospitable. But it's supposed to be hospitable, whether it's for someone we know or someone we don't know. A lover of good. Do you love what is good? Virtue. Or do you even think about those things? An elder is supposed to be a lover of good. It's supposed to be self-controlled. And then there's these three. Upright, holy, and disciplined. These really get into 
who they are in their relationship with God? Do they practice their devotion? Are they in the Scriptures being upright? Are they pursuing sanctification, looking to be more and more like Christ, strive for holiness? And then are they disciplined to do this? Are they like an athlete that works out every day at whatever their particular field is? Are they disciplined? Christian leaders need to demonstrate these attributes to others because when they do so, what it reveals is the power of the gospel to change. The power of the gospel to change. We'll see in a moment that it also gives the message of the gospel that shows that they're free from guilt They're free from the power of sin. Not that they never sin, but they're free from it. It gets down to this. Can they incarnate Christ? That's what a godly example does, is it incarnates Christ. Well, these are some things that put forth a godly example for us that elders are supposed to do. But they're also to be an example of witness. Verse 9, it talks about that they are to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. They're to accurately handle the word of God. That's what they're to do. And they've been given the gift. If they truly are an elder and called to be an elder, they're able that have the power to give instruction in the word of God and able to rebuke when necessary. And do so lovingly and graciously. The way they handle the Word of God day in and day out in passing it on to encourage others, to build them up in the faith, that's what they're supposed to do. That's the example that they're supposed to have for you. But they don't do it so that you look at them and say, man, that guy is so godly, and start praising him instead of praising the work that Christ has done in their life. Even that's of grace. So we want to be godly examples in our character. We want to be godly examples in the gospel witness that we have, in both word and deed. So what does this all mean? Okay, elders are supposed to, we're supposed to have elders because there's the office that's given by Christ. They're supposed to be a godly example in their character, and they're supposed to be a gospel witness in what they do. The moment of reflection that I chose for this week came out of 1 Corinthians. It says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is where the rubber meets the road. Because every single one of these attributes and characteristics, though it is true for an elder, it's true for you, believer. Oscar Wilde said, Imitation is the sincerest form is the most sincere form of flattery and yet we're to be imitators of Christ not to be flattered but out of love for the grace that he has shown towards us what kind of example are you for your spouse for your children For your neighbor? 
you will be imitated for the good and for the bad. How many of you can see things in your own children where they say things the way you said? Maybe they tire their shoe the same way you do. Maybe they have catchphrases that they use that you use. Maybe they've learned particular words that aren't socially acceptable that they learned from you and your example. But those are, the, those are the negative things. Do you have positive influence and positive examples on the people that you influence? And you do influence. Do you teach your kids scripture and then hear them later on repeating it back? Catechism questions. Do you influence them? Is their imitation of you really an imitation of Christ? Because they see Christ in you. You know, Pastor Jake and I are big baseball fans. There was a young man, David Clyde. He played for the Rangers. He had a very brief career, only five years long. He was the number one draft pick in 1973. He was obsessed with Sandy Koufax. You've got to be a baseball fan to know who Sandy Koufax was. He was a great pitcher for the Dodgers, left-handed pitcher in the 60s. Now I'm dating myself. David Clyde idolized Sandy Koufax. He was about the same size as Sandy Koufax. He was left-handed. If you were to see film of David Clyde pitching and Sandy Koufax side by side, you'd go, it's the same person. They, they both have the same motion. The, the ball leaves their hand in the same manner. David Clyde threw the same pitches that Sandy Koufax did. And in 1973, in June of 1973, 18 years of age, he takes the mound at Arlington Stadium. He was the wonder boy. He did everything he could to be like Sandy Koufax, and he actually won that first game, 4-3, to three, struck out eight batters. So yeah, there is some idea of imitation being the sincerest form of flattery in that instance. But there's no transformation that comes from that. There's no power for change. It's when we imitate Christ because what He's done for us by His grace and people begin to see that and we begin to express to them and set forth an example that is Christ-like to them that it changes lives. We need elders in the church that are godly examples, but they need to be making disciples of you and me both so that you can grow up in the faith, that you can then be examples to others. It is a perpetual thing that we are to continue on. I need to end this here. Let us pray. Father in heaven,
Lord, this is a lot to take in this morning. Lord, we want to be good examples as elders. And we want to be good examples for our family members, for our children, our spouses, our wives, our husbands, our neighbors. But Father, it is so hard. We need your grace. We need to be able to feed upon your word, to be built up in the faith, to have the spirit of God within us that we can live it out, that we can foster change. Pray that others will see us and want to be want to have you and be like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.